Hi everyone, welcome back to the Dealmakers IDF podcast series. This is William Lam. Today, along with Namrata, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christian Stock, Head of Finance Germany and Global Co-Head of Innovation from Linklaters. We will be talking about the additional Tier 1 bonds. Hi Dr. Stock, we are so grateful to have you on this podcast. Before we start, may I invite you to briefly introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, thanks and a pleasure to be here uh, in that uh, podcast series. As you said, my name is uh, Christopher Stork, partner in Cap Markets, uh, doing basically debt capital markets products, but also structured products. And as you rightly mentioned, I'm also heading the finance division in Germany, which comprises yeah the capital markets group, regulatory group, but also banking and our real estate team. And just to main mention that hat as well, because it's, I think, quite important nowadays is uh, as a global head of innovation, I think uh, using innovative technologies in presenting legal services is key. And I'm just mentioning uh, uh, GTP that this is uh, kind of the, the new thing and the development within Linklaters and presenting that to clients. It's important, but that's probably something for another podcast. In March 2023, the Swiss investment bank UBS announced that it would acquire the other giant Swiss investment bank, Credit Suisse. We know that the transaction was supported by the government of Switzerland, the Swiss Financial Market Supervisory Authority, and the Swiss National Bank. The most shocking feature of the transaction was that there was a complete write-down of the 81 bonds issued by Credit Suisse. Before we go into the details of this transaction, I would like to start by asking what are 81 bonds and how do they work? Perfect. Yeah, thank, thanks for that question. I'll pick, pick that up uh, before we then move to the, yeah, the recent example in the market, which everyone has discussed. Uh, so A-tier 1 bonds are, you, you can divide them, and I, I would do that in two categories. Uh, one are classical bonds with a loss absorption mechanism. So basically a write-down, deeply subordinated and writing down the nominal amount, which then results in a loss in your repayment. So that's one category, the, the classic ATR1 bond. And then, as you rightly mentioned, the other type of capital-enhanced products is the cocoa bond, which is a contingent convertible, where upon certain triggers, the bond, which is a debt instrument, will convert into shares, which are then either worthless or uh, yeah, deeply written down or kind of bearing a loss of the relevant institution. So that's the two kind of instruments which we need to kind of distinguish in the next questions and, and have them in parallel and see how they operate. You also asked, what is their function? And I mentioned it already, like the loss-observing moment, and probably we'll, we'll come to that as well, that Actually, if there is a crisis in a regulated credit institution, to be able to use these instruments as a further write-down mechanism to absorb these losses in, in order then to either rescue these institutions or to wipe them down in case there is no kind of prospect of running, continuing running that kind of business. So it has loss-absorbing features and the aim is to capitalize the banks properly in case of a crisis. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the 81 bonds were developed in the past? Yes, and there we need to go back to yeah, basically the financial crisis, the crash in, in 2008, where basically banks were failing, or there was the danger that they were failing, and 
it was developed in the kind of the capital structure of a bank, which consists, first of all, of equity, so stocks, uh, which are the main kind of tier one, basically, absorbing losses of a bank. But that was kind of, at a result of the crisis, not sufficient in order to bear the, the losses of any kind of crisis. And in order to address that problem, Basel III, Baal III, a framework which is currently but at the time was number one and two uh, was kind of developed uh, in order to have a uh, different capital tiers in a in a framework which is then a rundown of different seniorities of debt of a of a bank so that a bank has enough capital and money to absorb losses which are occurring perhaps important is to aspects of a bank's balance sheet or kind of a bank operating, you need to have kind of a risk-weighted asset. So RWA is one of the kind of the features which are important to reduce the insolvency risk. And what that means is you do a risk assessment of each type of asset of a bank. So basically a loan to a customer is an asset. And then it's the question of if that doesn't perform, basically the customer is not repaying that loan, it's a loss for the bank. And the RWA is then how much capital, and capital is tier one, A tier one, or additional A tier one, and in A tier two, is how much capital do you need to put against these kind of assets of a bank in order to reduce the insolvency risk. So that's, I think, important to understand the, the, the combination of assets, loss of assets, or non-performing assets, and the capital behind that. That's the, the, the history of why this kind of framework and tiering of capital has been invented. But other than its loss absorption function, how are 81 bonds different from the traditional convertible bonds? Yes. So let's let's focus on the COCOs, so not the, I mentioned the other one, the 81 bonds, which just have a write-down mechanism. But the COCOs are working a little bit differently because how they are uh, structured is that you get an interest rate, which is quite high because it's a risk, risky instrument. It's subordinated to the senior bonds. It's, and we come to that in the Swiss example, it's actually senior to the classic equity holder. So you get a kind of the typical debt instrument type of uh, fixed interest payment during the life of the bond. But then you also have the the conversion element, COCO, so contingent conversion. Upon certain triggers, and the triggers are basically early warnings or late warnings, triggers uh, which then convert that instrument, like in a classic convertible, into shares of the relevant banks, which then result in enhancement of the tier one, because that is a bigger pot then, in order to recapitalize the struggling bank. And basically, you have then this kind of trigger and you enjoy then the benefits of recovery or the losses uh, due to the fact that uh, the shares are taken down due to the crisis. Now, let's go back to the UBS acquisition of Credit Suisse. We know that shortly before UBS announcement of the acquisition, the Swiss Federal Council enacted an emergency ordinance allowing the Swiss National Bank to grant Credit Suisse a liquidity assistance loan backed by a federal default guarantee. This extraordinary government support triggered the complete write-down of the nominal value of all 81 bonds of Credit Suisse with a total amount of around 16 billion Swiss francs. Could you explain why there was such a complete write-down of the 81 bonds? 
Yes. So uh, I'll try to to do that. So first of all, the the kind of instruments here in question were not cocoa, so they were not contingent uh, convertible. So not kind of converting into shares would be easier in the entire restructuring. But here there were classic eighty one bonds, which have a kind of a mechanism of writing down the nominal amount and basically the repayment upon certain triggers as well, and and writing them down actually down to zero which then recapitalized the, the bank's balance sheet. And that is exactly what has happened here. The ATO1 instrument issued by Credit Suisse allowed upon, it is called there, a validity event, an extraordinary support by the government to allow at that kind of trigger a reduction of the nominal amount to zero. And that kind of support was provided by the Swiss authorities, kind of a a loan, kind of a liquidity loan, extraordinary liquidity line, which was provided, which allowed the write-down because the validity event has occurred. I think the problem is then that actually you write down these instruments to zero and the equity holders, so which are actually below, which you would think, okay, they are the first to bear any losses. They were then bought out basically by UBS because they got an offer it was not a $1 for $1. I don't know exactly the, the pricing, but at least they got something back on their shares of that offer because there was a classic takeover by UBS. So they got money and the more senior that instrument, the A-tier one bonds got zero. So beside the reasons you mentioned just now, could you describe briefly what are the types of triggers for the COCO bonds? Yes. So you have the the triggers are basically tied into the events which then lead to a loss in the balance sheet or into a crisis. So you have either going concern or gone concern, which is then the, the even lower trigger. These triggers could be based on the book values of certain assets or the balance sheet triggers. They could be discretionary kind of um, point of non-viability of the business. It could also be, as in the example of Credit uh, Suisse, it could be a trigger by an intervention by an authority, which is in particular in banks often the case, because then there is with all the, the BRD uh, measurements, there is the possibility of the authority going in. So that's a, that's a typical trigger. And yeah, accounting-based triggers are also seen and regulatory triggers, which derive from MREL or TLAC, so, so another kind of figures. So all of that is a whole kind of range in the market and hence no one should be surprised what the triggers are because they are in the, the document and not every bond uh, works the same. And uh, some investors got surprised by the Swiss example because they didn't realize, oh, this is actually a trigger which bites quite early and irrespective of what's happening to the shareholders. Can you tell us from your experience, which of these triggers are most commonly used by the banks? I think the most, or the, the, the actually the, the most one is, is is probably the accounting trigger because that's the, the that that's probably the one uh, we've seen the most. Plus the combination with the BRD resolution mechanism and 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 the relevant uh, triggers. I think that's probably the most common one. And the background is because these are triggers which are objective because. Yeah. If an authority jumps in, yeah, you, that, that's known. And accounting is also 
kind of you need to put that probably even in an ad hoc uh, notice. So if there's a loss on on the balance sheet, so it's actually quite objective, and it's yeah you get it stamped off by the the, the auditor. So again, objective tests. One of the most important characteristics of a cocoa bond is the loss absorption mechanism. So how exactly does a cocoa bond absorb losses in a troubled bank? Yeah, pretty pretty simple mechanism because you have a bond of 100, so worth 100, and the trigger is set with a certain strike price like a, like a normal bond as well. But it's a low one, it's a low trigger, which then turns that 100 into shares, so equity, with a value of, I'm just making that up, of 20. So basically, you get 80% loss absorption. It's it's basically, a, that that's the, the, the mechanism. You have a drive down of the share price. Um, you, you turn that into, into equity, the debt into an equity instrument. You enhance the balance sheet, the tier one, and you basically absorbing the, the relevant loss. That's how the, the mechanics are. So you mentioned just now about the conversion of debt into equity. In fact, there are many discussions among investors about whether cocoa bonds are debt or equity. It's interesting to note that a CEO of a major bank even expressed his frustration with these bonds by saying, when you want them to be debt, they are equity. And when you want them to be equity, they are debt. Could you explain in what situations are cocoa bonds treated as debt and in what situations are they treated as equity? It's an interesting discussion because often these instruments, it depends on from which side you're looking at and then you, you want them to be debt uh, or equity as you as you rightly uh, asked. And uh, it is from a, I'm, I'm talking as a lawyer, so I'm not a, the auditor or, or kind of because they have then different fact. I'm not the regulator because for them it's also quite important where they place it in the, in the capital structure. But for a lawyer, it's pretty simple. This is a debt instrument. It's a, convertible bond. So first of all, it is a bond and a debt instrument. It is functional and it smells like a, a bond instrument because you get an interest uh, and, and so on. However, there is this trigger event which results then this turning into an equity instrument and, and hence at that point in time, it qualifies as, a, as an equity and that's then the, the regulatory angle. So if you if you ask me, it really depends on from which side you're looking at if you're looking at it from a regulatory angle, yeah, they, they look at what's happening if that trigger event is, is occurring and they see it as, a, as an equity. But as an investor and on the balance sheet side, it's, it's probably more at that because it's a contingent option would be positive, but a contingent trigger or event. And hence, it's something which only occurs in, in some instances, not in all. It is evident that cocoa bonds help to improve financial stability and stabilize a troubled bank in times of crisis. Would you say that these instruments are better than the traditional bonds for achieving this end? Absolutely, because the the cocoa bonds have this, this kind of feature of a loss-absorbing element and hence you, you can't actually compare it to a normal senior bond because they are just in the, in the capital stack. They're just below, well below that. Uh, but as I've said, you can dress up a normal bond as an A tier one bond with a loss absorption mechanism and a subordination. But that's a different story. But then you are in the same category as the cocoa. So in the end, a senior bond is a senior bond. 
doesn't have these features, doesn't help the capital structure, it helps the, the liquidity and, and, and so on. But for capital structure, you need the ATA ones. Finally, would you say that these instruments are better than equity? A very good question. I would ask the question, what means better? I think we learned from the from the financial crisis, it's the mix and you have different possibilities to jump on the capital stack. And, and hence, I wouldn't say it's better. It's good to have all three types of capital because they serve different purposes. So it's not always equity, which is key, but it's also to have a, a proper a cushion of, of uh, ATM ones. Thank you, Dr. Stock, for this insightful conversation, and thank you to our listeners. Please don't forget to subscribe for this podcast and stay tuned for the upcoming episodes.